This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Last week, the state legislature debated a series of election-related amendments to the state constitution. The Republican-led proposals would, would outlaw private funding for elections, prevent non-U.S. citizens from voting in local elections, and have current voter photo ID requirements written into the state constitutions. The three proposals are at various stages right now for a constitutional amendment to be passed in Wisconsin. It has to be approved in two different sessions of the legislature, then it goes to a statewide vote. The governor's veto power does not apply to the amendment process. The Assembly Majority Leader joins us now for a look at the proposed amendments, what he hopes they'll accomplish if passed and then approved by voters. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What do you think of those changes? Do you think they should be done by changing Wisconsin's constitution? Join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts or your questions for our guest. That's 800-642-1234. You can also email ideas at WPR.org. Representative Tyler August is the Republican state representative for Wisconsin's 32nd Assembly District in and around Lake Geneva. He also serves as the Assembly Majority Leader. Representative August, welcome back to Central Time. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Let's talk through the basics of each of these amendments uh, one at a time. Uh, first of all, uh, who can vote in Wisconsin? Now, under federal law, non-citizens can't vote in federal elections. Uh, Wisconsin state law says citizens can vote, doesn't specifically outlaw non-citizens from voting. So there's this thought that local governments uh, could allow that as they've done in other states. Talk a little bit about uh, the motivation behind this amendment. Sure, this is a, a proactive amendment that, that our caucus has, is uh, gonna pass here in a couple of weeks out of the state assembly and send to our friends in the state Senate. Um, it's, it's very simple, it's a, it's a cleanup of our state constitution. The current constitution uh, states that every US citizen is considered a qualified elector. Uh, this just clarifies that only US citizens are considered qualified electors. We've seen some other states with similar language uh, that have had some municipalities at the local level attempt to expand those local election voting rights to non-U.S. citizens. And we really believe that the, the right to vote here in our country is, is for citizens of this great country and uh, that, that we should ensure that all elections at all levels here in Wisconsin, uh, voters are, are U.S. citizens to cast their ballot. Then we have a proposed ban on private funding for election administration. Uh, this, uh, there were uh, big grants from nonprofits during the 2020 elections aimed at, uh, according to the grant makers, uh, helping local administrators deal with the extra challenges of COVID. Talk us through what this amendment, amendment would do and why. Sure. So this amendment uh, is, is also quite simple. It would just prohibit private funds from being applied for, accepted, uh, or expended in uh, or used in any way in connection with the conduct uh, of, of in the administration of an election. Um, it also provides that only election officials that are designated by law to perform election tasks are actually allowed to perform those election tasks. So dealing with voter rolls or absentee ballots, that those all need to be uh, actual election officials. What we saw during the 2020 election, um, we had a, a group that's mostly funded by uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, at the Center for Tech and Civic Life. They, they donated nearly $9 million uh, into uh, five Wisconsin cities, Milwaukee, Madison, Green Bay, Kenosha, and Racine. Um, and that was 85% of the total money they donated here in Wisconsin was to those five targeted uh, uh, municipalities. 
And what we saw it happen in Green Bay is one of the employees for the Center for Tech and Civic Life was actually uh, had keys to the absentee ballot room, was in some cases uh, making, uh, uh, it appears uh, he was making decisions on which absentee ballots should be counted and which ones weren't. And we just think that it's not appropriate for uh, for private dollars to be used in this way to administer our elections. Uh, that we, we truly believe that uh, elections here in Wisconsin should be funded uh, by the municipality. It's one of the core functions of government that we, the, the government runs the elections, not outside groups, so that we can make sure that everyone uh, knows that we have free and fair elections here in Wisconsin and can be can trust the outcome of those elections. One of the arguments uh, in favor of that kind of funding was uh, we were kind of winging it during the COVID year. Uh, the most populous parts of the state uh, had the biggest logistical challenges dealing with elections during COVID. And, uh, and some of your Democratic colleagues have said the state legislature didn't come through to help municipalities uh, in that time of need. So why not allow in that contingency uh, the private sector, the civic sector to step up? Well, I think that it's important to note that uh, that this that this this money was targeted specifically to certain cities. Again, 85% of all of the money went to just five cities. So it's very clear to me and to my colleagues that that money was going specifically to help areas of the state that vote a certain way. I think that uh, had the shoe been on the other foot and a, a big conservative donor had decided to do a grant program for the WOW counties or heavily Republican areas, I think my Democratic colleagues would have a very different view uh, if something like that were to happen. So this this isn't targeted to any you know, one side of the aisle or the other. This will make sure that uh, conservatives, liberals, Democrats, Republicans, libertarians, Greens, no, no one can have undue uh, influence in how the elections are administered. Uh, that those will be handled by our election, our municipal clerks, our county clerks that are election professionals and know how to follow the law. Talking to Republican State Assembly Representative and Assembly Majority Leader Tyler August about a trio of proposed constitutional amendments related to Wisconsin elections. That brings us to number three, Representative August, a voter ID. Now, this is in law in Wisconsin right now. Why add it to the Constitution? I think that it's an important uh, part of our constitution or will become an important part of our constitution uh, to make sure that uh, people who are voting are who they say they are. Uh, it's, it's, it's worked well. Uh, there are certainly uh, things built into the state law as of right now uh, to make sure people can access a free ID if they need one just for voting purposes. That was a very important part of the law that was written in and, no, and none of that changes. And under this, under this, uh, the, those acceptable form of IDs would still be specified by law so that as we move into the future, if there's changes into uh, how our driver's license are or uh, or our passports or things like that, 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 that we can be nimble enough to accept alternative forms uh, of, of those documents. So we're not spelling that specifically out in the Constitution, but we are saying that you must have a photo ID in order to vote in the Constitution. I think there's been uh, there's been many legal challenges against the the uh, voter ID legislation since it was first signed into law uh, about a decade or more ago. Um, it's it has survived those challenges, but there is also always that concern um, that an activist court could just decide that they don't like that law and throw it out. Well, if it's in the state constitution, uh, they don't have that ability. I, I believe that this uh, of all all three of these uh, constitutional amendments, I believe will pass. I believe they're wildly popular across the state.
but I really think the voter ID one is probably the most popular. And I would, I would expect that uh, people would support this when it does go in front of uh, the voters for a statewide referendum uh, to make sure that we, uh, that we're making it easy, easy to vote, hard to cheat, um, and make sure that the people casting ballots are in fact who they say they are. Let's go to our callers now. Willem is with us in Colfax. Willem, hello. Hello. I uh, disagree with the speaker, and I reject the premise that there was something wrong with our elections that needed correcting. There's been no evidence that people who weren't supposed to vote voted. All you know, it's just a it's a faulty premise, and it's propagated. I blame the Republican leadership under the leadership of the former president. His lies about the election have permeated into the party to make people believe that there was something wrong when there wasn't anything wrong. Well, and thanks uh, for the call. Representative August? Yeah, I would just say that at any time that there is something like what happened in, uh, in Green Bay with a non-election official having access to, uh, to absentee ballot rooms, uh, that, that is enough to, to raise some eyebrows and to have some people question what exactly was going on there and why would that individual have those keys. So even if there isn't, even if there wasn't any issue with the 2020 election, the, the perception is out there that there were some problems. So I think it's incumbent upon us as elected officials to make sure that every voter, regardless of which side of the aisle they're on or who they vote for, uh, has, has that faith that the outcome is correct. And that is one of the most important foundations of our country is people having faith in our elections. Thanks for that call. Now, I'm just looking at an AP report on this. Social media's, uh, media users said the city handed over keys to an election counting facility to uh, the person in question here. A report from the city in Green Bay said he never actually handled the keys or counted ballots. Uh, did he? Ha- I, I just want to raise that. Uh, there have been a lot of uh, back and forths on this. Are we overstating the risk there? Uh, I don't think we're, that we're overstating the risk. I mean, if an individual, uh, what they, they say that they didn't access the room, uh, I, I, haven't, uh, I haven't seen that they have or haven't. But, but the very fact that that individual had access to the room is concerning enough to where things like this uh, need to be put in place. And I think that that's really what's behind uh, our, what, what we're trying to do here is to make sure that only election officials uh, are handling are handling ballots and handling voter records. That that is the appropriate way to run an election. Not someone uh, kind of off the street that works for a nonprofit who uh, maybe has ill intent, maybe has good intent. It's just not appropriate for them to be involved in that process. Time for one more caller before we let you go, Representative August. Uh, Nate is with us in Milwaukee. Nate, hello. Hi, uh, thank you very much for having me. I am always suspicious when I see a constitutional amendment coming from the state government because I'm not sure what they're telling me, what they're not telling me rather these days. Uh, I remember the older one uh, about the transportation fund years ago where they didn't tell people that a lot of money was taken out of the general fund and they were not doing anything to put or secure that. Uh, But getting to this one, I'm looking at the money to... Um, over 200 communities, which tells me that a lot of communities could apply for help with funding their elections. But I'd also point out that I think that people should be able to vote across the state no matter where they are, rural or city. And considering that the city of Milwaukee has uh, gotten lower per person funding through shared revenue and things like that, 
I think it is something that that should get fixed before we try to chop off funding for other uh, situations. I got you, Representative August. uh, Your thoughts before we let you go? Uh, Yeah, I would just mention very quickly that earlier this year, we actually uh, did a major deal on shared revenue. I know it's not the topic here, but uh, the city of Milwaukee uh, did quite well under that deal that we worked out with Governor Governor Evers. And so uh, I I think that we we have, uh, while we can always do more to to help our local communities, uh, we've certainly taken great strides uh, over the last six months and through the budget process in doing so. So I think that that concern uh, has has been mostly addressed, and now it's time to move on to to uh, the concerns of some folks uh, with these three amendments. Nate, thanks for the call, and Representative August, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. That's Representative Tyler August, Republican State Representative for Wisconsin's 32nd Assembly District, also serves as the Assembly Majority Leader. He was with us for a look at proposed amendments to the state's Constitution on private election grants, voter eligibility, and voter ID requirements. Coming up, a law and politics expert breaks down those proposals a little more for us. Still time for you to join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts or questions about those proposals. 800-642-1234. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our talk about Republican proposed amendments to Wisconsin's Constitution that would outlaw private funding for election administration, prevent non-U.S. citizens from voting in local elections, and keep local governments from allowing them to do that, and have current voter, voter photo ID requirements written into the state Constitution. You can join in with your thoughts at 800-642-1234. Howard Schwaber joins us now, professor of political science emeritus and affiliate faculty at the law school at UW-Madison. Howard, welcome back to the show. Well, glad to be here. We heard uh, the uh, the basics from the Assembly Majority Leader there. How, what do you think of the idea of uh, putting these in the Constitution, going through this amendment process? Well, so there's both a legal and a political side to this. Let me start with the politics. Um, I have to say, regretfully, that I find Representative August's justifications disingenuous, uh, and in some cases, not particularly coherent. So let me take one example. The question about outside funding for elections. Representative August's justification for banning private funding for elections was that some people might be concerned by the fact that an unauthorized person had access to a voting room in Green Bay. That might be a good reason to have better security measures on voting rooms that has nothing to do with the source of funding for the operating of elections. The reason there is a desire for private funding of elections is, unfortunately, that on this issue, Republicans do not uh, come to this with clean hands. Around the country, there's been an organized effort by Republicans to close polling places, excuse me, close polling places, that came out wrong, sorry, uh, and deny services to areas that are heavily minority on the theory that heavily minority areas tend to vote Democratic. This is a byproduct of our racialized voting in this country. So the difficulty with, you know, the justification is really in three parts. Number one, the fact that some people have concerns is not by itself a justification for political action, particularly when the party in power has made such great efforts to create and fan those concerns, right, in a kind of a self-justifying action. You create a fear and then address it. Number two, the ban on funding has nothing to do with the event that the representative cites as its justification. And number three, the ban on private funding uh, funding ignores the fact that that funding in the first place uh, was brought in, in in response to a an actual and national practice of under of, of selectively underfunding areas in order to favor Republican candidates. So, you know, if the history were different and if the situation were different and if there were some assurance 
that everyone in the state would have equal opportunity to vote and there would be as many polling places per population in one area as in another and so on, then this might be a perfectly harmless amendment. Under the circumstances, one has to wonder what, what is wrong uh, with allowing private money to be used if its only goal is to allow the voting system to reach people in the way that it's supposed to. The argument, and we heard this from Representative August, is, okay, if I have lots of money to throw around, I don't. But if I did and I wanted one side to win, I would selectively target uh, those communities to make voting easier uh, and not do that in other areas or, you know, throw token amounts to other areas. It It's a way of trying to fund the election administration system, the argument goes, uh, to benefit one side or the other. Right. But notice that argument only makes sense if you assume the system is underfunded to begin with. If the system were adequately funded, there wouldn't be a problem with people being unable to vote because there are inadequate resources. The only way this argument makes any sense, I mean, just logically, is if you start by assuming that the party in power is underfunding election systems and then prevent people from trying to fit to, to remedy that situation in selected areas. And of course, it's worse than that. As I say, there's an ongoing and longstanding national pattern uh, of Republicans not having clean hands when it comes to funding electoral administration. But, you know, the basic logic is that, oh, this is an unfair advantage because we are not able to disadvantage people uh, by by giving them inadequate resources to conduct elections in the first place. If those resources were sufficient across the state, it wouldn't matter that additional money was contributed because there'd be nothing to spend it on. Now, you mentioned uh, a political and a legal uh, concern. What was the legal side? That was the political side we've been talking about, the legal that is. Uh, so on the legal side, um, I was thinking much more of the voter ID case uh, 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 matter than the funding matter, uh, although there, there could be issues there as well, uh, First Amendment issues uh, in, involving since money is speech and political money is political speech. Um, and since giving money to run election systems does not intrinsically, right, you can argue it's selectively applied, but it does not in and of itself have to do with supporting one side or the other. It's very hard to see the justification for allowing unlimited private contributions to electoral campaigns, uh, particularly dark money contributions and corporate contributions and PAC contributions. And again, Republicans in Wisconsin have a very sordid history of engaging in collusion uh, to evade restrictions on those kind of contributions at the campaign stage, uh, and then turn around and sort of piously claim we must make sure that only you know no public a- uh, actors, sorry, no private actors in, uh, are involved in the oper- in the funding of elections. But the one that is uh, on the legal side um, is the voter ID law. It's quite true that law was upheld in a decision by the Seventh Circuit. It's also true that two years later, Judge Posner of that circuit said he had not fully understood the situation. That in retrospect. Uh, he finds the Wisconsin voter found the Wisconsin voter ID law to be essentially racially discriminatory. The issue is that the voter ID law was not designed in response to a problem of false voting, of people voting who weren't allowed to. There is no such phenomenon on any kind of scale whatsoever. The voter ID law, which is borrows from a model that was started out in North Carolina, was carefully designed to make it more difficult for people who are likely to vote Democratic to vote. And research was done in North Carolina, and then carried forward without being repeated to Wisconsin, that said, for example, college students tend to vote Democratic, and uh, elderly people tend to vote early, and poor people tend to have difficulty getting IDs. And the voter ID law was designed to make it more difficult for those populations to vote. So again, we're not starting from a place of neutral fair administration. We're starting from a, a place of a long-standing series of manipulation and gamesmanship to try and disadvantage one party's voters. Uh, and now the party has been engaging in those games is you know, insisting that we preserve 
this, those steps that have been put into place uh, in the name of neutrality. It's not that a voter ID is necessarily a bad idea. It's not that public funding of elections is a bad idea. In fact, I favor it. Frankly, I favor public funding of election campaigns. Um, but it's disingenuous and legally questionable to use a facially neutral instrument that's, whose history is uh, one of being designed to disadvantage a particular party and try to justify uh, and try it into the Constitution uh, as something that cannot be changed under state law. Time for one more caller. Mike is with us in Reedsburg. Mike, hi. Yes, good afternoon. Your uh, second guest here obviously shows his political affiliation and his views regarding uh, election security. I think, you know, it's the elections, what they were, the integrity of elections needs to be secure. And no U.S. citizen should have a problem when you're asked for ID in so many other cases to show ID to vote, to be a U.S. citizen to vote, because I can't go to any other country in the world and vote as a non-citizen of that country. And that was something that was instilled in our Constitution. It's a right of getting older. I know my kids and myself when we were younger, we look forward to certain rights that became ours when we reached certain age. Being voter or being a voter is one of those as well. And regardless of your political party, I don't think either side should have a problem, not because of why these bills came to came to view. But Mike, fact- I, I got you. We just have a few moments left, Howard. Uh, if you want to respond to to any or, or all of what Mike had to say in just our last half. Sure. Minute no, so. I'm not expressing a political affiliation. I'm just aware of the political history of these specific measures. Uh, and I mean, for example, similar measures have been used by Democrats in other states at other times, and they're equally suspect. Uh, the caller is mistaken. In most countries in the world, non-citizens can vote, for example, in municipal elections. There's a long-standing principle that says that authority should be as local as possible. And so, for example, if you have a school board that serves a student population many of much of which is immigrant, you may want to have parents allowed to vote of those children allowed to vote in those school board elections. And I absolutely am in favor of election security and even IDs for that matter. But these particular laws are not, in fact, neutral efforts to secure those goals. They're carefully engineered efforts to favor one party over another that are now being promoted. In other words, the background does matter that are now being promoted under a false claim of neutrality and the attempt is to try and enshrine an advantage into the Constitution. Much and we'll leave it there. Thanks to Howard Schwaber from UW-Madison Law School. We heard from uh, Republican Assembly Majority Leader uh, Tyler August earlier on constitutional amendments for Wisconsin elections. It's the day after Halloween, and if your workplace is like mine, that means there's an annual tradition. The candy that didn't go to trick-or-treaters comes to work. It's actually been a little light here this year. I'm kind of surprised. I missed a first round earlier in the morning. That went away fast. I provided the next round of leftover candy. I didn't buy way too much this year, but I still had leftovers after all the trick-or-treaters were done. Part of the reason was my candy choice. On purpose, I did not buy the candy bars that I like the most because when I do, there are predictable results. So I didn't eat much of the candy I bought this year, and I haven't had many leftovers today, which is probably good because when I eat sugar, Early in the afternoon, I crash a little bit just in time for the show. I learned that the hard way a few hundred times. Happy day after Halloween. This is Central Time. Listening to Central Time, I'm Rob Ferret. 
Coming up, a digital privacy expert talks about concerns over AI, so-called artificial intelligence, using personal and private information. Right now, it's time for Wisconsin Life. Here's producer Maureen McCollum with a story about some memorable bartenders. Wisconsin has one of the highest concentrations of bartenders in the country, with more than 24,000 people working behind a bar. And a good percentage of them are women. But as writer Patty C. tells us, that hasn't always been the case. Few of us bar lovers realize it took until 1970 for women to legally tend bar in major U.S. cities. The only exception was if they were the wives or daughters of male owners. Over four centuries ago, British pubs were often run by women. In the New World, Puritan-influenced blue laws were enacted to protect ladies from taverns full of drunken men fighting with swords and guns, not to mention their vulgar language, gambling, and overflowing spittoons. History professor Madeline Powers, author of Faces Along the Bar, claimed that drinking establishments offered alternative entrances for Victorian-era women so they didn't have to pass through the front barroom, which was still undisputed male territory. In later eras, saloons filled with women often meant money was made the old-fashioned way. I'm not talking about Wisconsin's favorite mixed drink. After World War II, registered nurse Joyce Connolly and her Navy pilot husband Hank planned to open a grocery store in western Wisconsin. Instead, in 1950, the couple bought a building and transformed it into Glenlock Bar on Chippewa Falls' north side. Joyce was seven months pregnant, and the couple had three and five-year-old daughters. Hank did the heavy lifting in the bar, replacing kegs from the ice house down the road, while Joyce says, I was behind the bar all the time. She put their children to bed before the nightly rush. This beer bar catered to 18 to 20-year-olds. Sometimes parents came in to check out the spot kids flocked to for lining kugels, hot beefs, and french fries, the entire menu. Our customers were wonderful, Joyce says. She is 98 now and continues to live in Chippewa Falls. When I was a kid in the late 1970s, my family frequented our neighborhood tavern below Holy Ghost Hill in Chippewa Falls. Francis Tootie Wilson bought the Plunkett Inn and changed its name to Tootie's. She was a fixture there. Another bar owner once challenged Tootie to a wrestling match in a kiddie pool filled with pudding. I hope photos of that event still exist somewhere. Sunday afternoons, my dad often drove our family 60 minutes to Jump River Roses Deer Farm and Supper Club, where Rose Warizniak let customers pet her tamed fawn inside her tavern. One patron remembered Rosie as a lady who could smoke a cigar, tend a bar, milk cows, go out logging or hunting, and then listen to your troubles over a beer. She'd also spent time as a bull rider and stock car driver and later ran for Russ County Sheriff. Paramount Pictures paid Rosie in advance for a film based on her life. Because of people like Joyce, 
Tootie, Rosie, and many others. Today, women make up 61% of all bartenders in the U.S., though they still don't purchase bars as often as men. Back in the 1950s, Glenlock co-owner Joyce Connolly often fretted when patrons nicknamed her tavern Hanks. She recently joked, all the work I did, and they never called it Joyce's. Patty C. is a writer from Lake Halley, Wisconsin. Wisconsin Life is a co-production of Wisconsin Public Radio and PBS Wisconsin in partnership with Wisconsin Humanities. Additional support comes from Lowell and Mary Peterson of Appleton. Find more Wisconsin Life at wisconsinlife.org and on Facebook and Instagram. The technical producer for this story was Sarah Hopeful. I'm Maureen McCollum. This is Central Time. Earlier this year, a group of authors, including John Grisham and Jody Pico, sued OpenAI over what they allege is plagiarism of their books after artificial intelligence companies use their books and others to train their algorithms. But artificial intelligence isn't just trained on published works of art like books and paintings. Companies also use massive chunks of the public-facing Internet, like social media profiles, company websites, voter registration databases, and much, much more. Meta said that its latest AI was in part trained on public Instagram and Facebook posts. Elon Musk says that X, formerly Twitter, plans to do the same with its users' content. Amazon says it will use voice data from customers' conversations with Alexa. That's just part of the public data used at the back end of these so-called artificial intelligence applications. The Biden administration just issued a new executive order on AI. It's not clear yet what it will really mean for the use of this info. So what does it all mean for your information, personal, public, private, how it gets collected, used, misused? You can join in at 800-642-1234. If you have questions about how these AI apps are trained, how your data might end up being part of it and ultimately used later on, join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Dorothea Salo is distinguished teaching faculty at the Information School and the School of Computer, Data, and Information Sciences at UW-Madison and an expert in personal privacy and security online. Dorothea, welcome back to Central Time. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. Now, let's talk a little bit about how this artificial intelligence or what we're calling artificial intelligence now is and how it works and how it gets trained on this massive, massive data source that is the Internet. Well, AI is a lot of things really, and we don't want to go there. What we're mostly talking about now is so-called generative AI, like chatbots and like um, image generators. And the way that they get data is very similar to how a search engine like Google or DuckDuckGo gets data. Basically an AI model builder writes a little software program that can load web pages, follow links on them, and find stuff that the builder might want to train their their AI model on and send that back to the builder's servers. There have been some concerns and some articles written lately about uh, how much information is going on there, things that uh, individuals might not think goes into this. What, uh, for our personal data, what we might have thought Mm -hmm. of as private data even, what is ending up, uh, as far as we know, on the back end of these AI, uh, generative AI apps? As far as we know, there's a little bit of, um, more than a little bit actually, of race to the biggest AI model going on in this space. How you show that your model is important is the size of its training set. 
So the incentives there are really to let the, the crawlers grab whatever they can find, absolutely no vetting, um, and just throw that willy-nilly into the training set. So what kinds of personal data might, uh, might this apply to? Anything that you post publicly, as you mentioned, to a uh, social media platform could end up in a training set, though there are some platforms like Reddit, for example, that are actually pushing back really hard on this because they're getting scraped and they don't see any value for, for it. So they, they want some kickbacks from the AI companies on that. But beyond what you post publicly, security on the, on the web, um, information security kind of is what it is and it's frequently kind of bad. And since the crawlers and the people who run the crawlers aren't paying attention to the data that they're vacuuming up, it is quite possible, and there are documented cases of data that should not really have been public at all, accidentally ending up in training sets. Right, an Ars Technica report from about a year ago talked to an artist who was looking for her art showing up in these things and ended up finding medical images that had been under the control of her doctor's office somehow finding their way into the public internet, getting scanned, and then reproducing pictures of her going through medical treatment. Right. Uh, is this going to be a bit, is that a one-off, do you think, or is this something that could be happening more commonly? Oh, no, definitely not a one-off. Um, and there's history here. This is not the first time this has happened. About a decade ago, for example, Duke University researchers released a data set for facial recognition researchers of what was basically surveillance video from around the Duke University campus. And they didn't tell anybody beforehand. They certainly didn't seek any consent. They were like, hey, everybody, check out who walks around our campus. Um, so the, the organization responsible for this is called Leon. And they're interestingly a nonprofit. They've got people from academia, they've got people from industry. So I think one lesson here is that we sometimes have the sense in our heads that nonprofit equals good, nonprofit equals ethical. And in the AI space, I don't think we can totally trust that. Now, so, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, we've been focusing on the input now. These uh, AI, yep. generative AI bots are finding all this data, they've got it. What do you worry about when it comes to the output, what they're gonna do with this, in some cases, maybe highly sensitive personal information? Oh, there have been some interesting cases there. There's actually a lawsuit ongoing, I believe, against OpenAI, I believe it's OpenAI, uh, at present over um, a chatbot putting out material about a living human being that was arguably defamatory. It was certainly not true. <laughs> and it did not make the person in question look real good. So he is suing the AI company saying, seriously, this is not okay. We're talking about why artificial intelligence is sometimes trained on private and sensitive information that was not always intended to be public in the first place. Dorothea Salo is a distinguished teaching faculty at the Information School and the School of Computer Data and Information Sciences at UW-Madison. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have concerns about these generative AI programs, the information that's going in, the information they're putting out, misinformation maybe they are putting out? Do you use the chat GPTs or, uh, or image generating AI programs and more? 
What are you seeing? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Coming up, a look at an executive order on AI from the Biden administration. This is Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We continue our talk with Dorothea Salo, Distinguished Teaching Faculty at the Information School and the School of Computer, Data, and Information Sciences at UW-Madison, looking at uh, artificial intelligence uh, applications, many of them trained on public information, sometimes private and sensitive information, not always intended to be public in the first place. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What are your hopes, your fears, your questions about artificial intelligence? Do you want to see regulations? What should they look like? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Okay, now we have this new uh, executive order uh, from President Biden. He signed it. Here's a little bit of what he had to say about it. The company must tell the government about the large-scale AI systems they're developing and share rigorous independent test results to prove they pose no national security or safety risk to the American people. All right, uh, Dorothea, this is a big, long executive order, a lot of subpoints. Big picture, do you see much in it that does a lot to protect our our data, our privacy? Unfortunately, no. Um, there is language in it about privacy. It's very vague language. But what's interesting about it is actually uh, what the dog did in the nighttime, which is nothing. Uh, nothing about transparency in terms of sources. In other words, these AI companies do not have to tell us where they are getting their data from, which is exactly what people who have concerns about their private data or their creative output really want to know. Yeah, what what would you like to see in terms of regulations? And I'm guessing, I'm hearing some people say it would have to come from Congress more likely than an executive order. What kind of transparency requirements to start with would you like to see? Uh, transparency of sources is really the big one. You need to tell me where you're scraping. Um, I, another reason for transparency is that there are starting to be some technical measures available to at least tell these web crawlers from these AI companies, no, you cannot scrape my site. And another thing that I think transparency would accomplish is um, are these crawlers being polite? Do they hear the word no? And do they actually respect it? Now, how about intellectual property? I mentioned at the outset yeah. that uh, author lawsuit, now those are big famous authors. Lots of people come up with uh, ideas and turns of phrase and images and songs and things like that. Do we yeah. have enough well-defined protections for our intellectual property as, as individuals, as creators? We really do not. We don't have uh, a whole lot of court rulings here uh, to give us guidance, and we don't have a lot of legislation. There is a bit in the executive order where I believe the Copyright Office and I think the Trademark Office as well are going to meet and they're going to discuss what they think guidelines should look like. And that's a positive, but I have no idea how that is going to turn out. Now, with social media, I think uh, over the course of a handful of years, we went through cool cat pictures to, hey, these <laughs> things are leading to like governments being overthrown and things like that. We should have probably gotten yeah. out ahead of this sooner. Are, do you get a sense that there's some sense of urgency on AI to not let that happen? Yeah, this is part and parcel of the whole misinformation problem. 
um, which partly stems from AI chatbots, for example, do not really understand the world around us. They do not really understand what they're saying. They're just making statistics-based guesses about what a good answer would look like. Um, I have a lot of librarian friends who have been having trouble at the reference desk because people keep coming to them with citations to books and articles that don't exist. <laughs> and invariably, what happened was somebody asked a chatbot um, about something academic and it produced all of these completely bogus citations. So that's one example of a much larger problem. And I don't even know how you regulate around that. It's Brianna Collar now at 800-642-1234. Chad is with us in Manitowoc. Chad, hi. Hello. Um, hi. This might, hi. This might be a little bit off the subject, but I was just um, judging from what you're saying, you're not too concerned about the singularity taking being something that we have to be concerned about soon. <laughs> Chad, thanks for the call. Uh, and this no. is just uh, so uh, just uh, the singularity, this idea that artificial intelligence is going to hit a, t a tipping point where it's smarter than humans and doesn't need humans, uh, things like that. Right. Now, there are some people in the industry who are making a big yep. deal about this. I understand you're a little skeptical about uh, that effort, Dorothea. Yes, I am extremely skeptical. And I think part of the reason that industry people are pushing uh, talk about the singularity is that it's a distraction from all of the other stuff that we've been talking about today. Uh, the use, the plagiarism of copyrighted material, the use of personal private information, as well as creative output without any kind of real value exchange. Um, but if you can get people worried about the singularity instead, maybe you can avoid regulation on all that other stuff. Chad, thanks a lot for the call. Important issue to bring up at 800-642-1234. Talking to Dorothea Salo from the Information School at UW-Madison about artificial intelligence, regulation, and or lack of same. Dorothea, absent, uh, say, Congress stepping in and doing something yeah. or the executive branch doing, what are you worried about as these companies run uh, kind of full steam ahead on, in this, as you mentioned, a race uh, to create the biggest, most powerful generative AI? Um, I think mostly I'm worried about something that is not specific to AI. We've certainly seen it in other forms of technology, search engines, social media platforms, whatever. And it, it is really just people steaming full, full ahead without thinking through the implications, without taking responsibility for the harms that they are causing. Um, and as we head into a major election year, um, that's really starting to scare me with the hallucinations and misinformation issue, particularly. And I've heard of legislative efforts, I believe, including here in Wisconsin, to try to uh, create limits or bans on using, for example, uh, if I take the rival candidate, gin up some AI mm -hmm. thing, having them doing or saying something terrible, uh, trying to ban that. I mean, is that a crude implement or is that something we need more of it's a start um it's uh it's really hard to write something comprehensive in this area because things are changing so fast so you do end up with this kind of whack-a-mole legislative effort where you see the latest horrible thing that somebody is doing and you say that we need to stop them doing that 
Um, but that, of course, leads to extremely specific laws and really just kind of a gappy sense of, um, of what regulation should look like. Now, earlier this year, we had this petition from a bunch of scientists, tech industry leaders, including some with some of these AI companies saying, hey, let's take a six month pause on advancing AI technology till we evaluate the risks more. Uh, is that realistic? Would you would, is that a good idea? I don't know. I don't know that we would know any more about the risks in six months <laughs> than we do already. I suspect that is another delaying effort to try to, you know, look good to people. I don't think they expected it to succeed. And I don't, I'm not even sure they really wanted it to. As we wrap up, Dorothea, do we see, I mean, we've been talking about a lot of concerns about generative AI. Do you see, do you have hopes for some positive uses just in our last half a minute or so? I do, um, but it's not so much for these very general tools like the chatbots and the image generators. Um, research AI, there's some very interesting things happening, uh, very relatively narrow uses of AI with narrowly constructed data sets. There's a lot of really interesting stuff happening there, and I definitely want that to continue. Dorothea, thanks a lot for joining us again. You're very welcome. That's Dorothea Salo, Distinguished Teaching Faculty at the Information School and the School of Computer, Data, and Information Sciences at UW-Madison. She talked to us about artificial intelligence and privacy concerns. Coming up tomorrow here on Central Time, it's heating season in Wisconsin. How much is it going to cost us? We'll check out the latest news from utilities and the energy market and what it all means for our energy bills. And high school football is a longstanding tradition in communities around the state, but many districts are having trouble fielding full teams. Find out why and how schools and athletes are responding. That and more coming up tomorrow here on Central Time. Coming up after the news, a Wisconsin political scientist talks about his new book, The Fantasy Economy, which tells the story of why so many Americans blame economic problems on the educational system. I'm Rob Ferret. This is Central Time.